You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters because accounting matters. From Embark's headquarters in Dallas, Texas, this is Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark. Hi, hello, good afternoon. It's great to be with each of you as we kick off season two of the Accounting Matters podcast. I'm Zach Smith, Embark's resident Tampa market president, and I'm joined with my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's accounting advisory practice leader. On this week's episode, we'll be joined by Matt Fisser, a managing director in Embark's financial accounting practice discussing digital assets. Adam, Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Glad to be here. <laughs> Renewed for a second season. Yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> well, Adam, hey, listen, I think before we get started, it would be helped to get some of the basics uh, like we usually do. Yep. So before we even attempt to start talking about the accounting, can you go ahead and first address what exactly is a digital asset? Yeah, sure. So uh, the term digital asset is it's a very broad term. Um, you know, I think a lot of people when they think about digital assets, the first thing they jump to is the ever popular cryptocurrency that you hear and see about in the news. So your Bitcoins, your Ethereum's, things of that. But cryptocurrency and crypto assets for that nature really are just one type of digital asset. Um, there's a number of other digital assets that also exist that kind of fall under the um, the same umbrella there. But if we're thinking about broad strokes here and really what makes an asset a digital asset it really centers around um, what those assets are focused or built around which is this concept of blockchain technology and i i I won't pretend to be the expert on blockchain which is why we've got matt in the house here to help talk about that in a bit Um, but blockchain technology is really at the center of what what creates a digital asset and that that term cryptocurrency crypto assets it's really you know derived from this concept of cryptography which is kind of the center of blockchain and that's really about verifying and securing transactions that are on like a published public ledger that a number of participants can really like view and use so that's that's really what the genesis of a digital asset is okay and i think many people these days are familiar with the types of cryptocurrency we've got bitcoin ethereum and the like I feel like you can't watch a sporting event or even an award show uh, without some sort of crypto advertisement popping up somewhere throughout the commercial. (laughs) But since digital assets are broader than just cryptocurrency, can you help us understand some of the different types that do exist? Yeah, so when I think about, in my simple mind, like how to break down digital assets, I usually distinguish them between those that are considered fungible and then those that are not. So... Fungible assets are digital assets, for example, are those that really allow the holder or entitle the holder to some type of either underlying good or service. So if you think about like a utility token or a security token, or it's a type of asset that really serves um, kind of as a medium of exchange. So like, as you mentioned, the cryptocurrencies, so like your Bitcoins, things like that, those are used as a medium of exchange. Um, one thing about a crypto asset also is that you want to keep in mind, it's not just really that it can serve as a medium of exchange, but it actually has to also not have been issued by a governmental entity. It can't serve as a contract between the holder and the issuer, and it can also be considered a security under the Securities Act. So, you know, absent those three items and it serves as a medium of exchange, then you, you, you basically have a fungible crypto asset. And then on the other hand, you've got the non-fungible assets, um, which really represent more or less like an ownership um, in some type of digital or physical asset. So, 
you know, a lot of times you'll hear in the news, people are buying non-fungible tokens, NFTs is kind of the, the nomenclature there, but, you know, they're buying like pieces of works of art or musical mm -hmm. works, or it could be memorabilia or collections or things of that nature that people buy non-fungible tokens and have kind of an ownership interest in that asset. Now, Matt, I've heard in the news talk about stable coins. Can you explain what a stable coin is and how that might be different from just traditional cryptocurrency? Yeah, absolutely. So a stable coin pegs its value to something more traditional that we know, a fiat currency, a US dollar. And typically what happens is it's trying to remove the volatility that we see in the Bitcoins and Ethereums, the 40 to 60,000 down to $19,000 in Bitcoin. The stable coin, the issuer typically holds some sort of reserve to try to minimize that volatility that is usually in a crypto asset or a digital asset. Now, with that being said, it's very important to understand what the legal ownership rights are just because it's tagged as a stable coin, right? There are many coins out there and many types of digital assets. So really understanding the issuer and what type of traditional asset it, it is backed by, a commodity or fiat currency is very important. So Matt, let me back up just a little bit. We talked at the start around digital assets and that they center around blockchain technology. If someone hasn't heard of this tech terminology before or this technology, what exactly does it mean? Yeah, so that's kind of a loaded question because we don't want to get too much into the technicalities of it. But really, Adam mentioned it. It is a distributed ledger and a peer-to-peer -peer network. And so if we go back to the very beginning of what we'll call 2008, 2009, of when this white paper from Satoshi Nakamura was released, what the genesis of this technology was for was to remove an intermediary between two parties because that intermediary is used because I don't technically or may not trust the other party. So it's used as a form of ensuring trust between parties. And at that time, if we remember back in the financial crisis, a lot of the intermediaries, i.e. banks, were viewed as um, a part of the problem. Yep. <laughs> and so removing them and having a peer-to-peer -peer network is really the genesis of this blockchain technology. And so what that means is everybody has a way to record and view all transactions throughout the time since a Bitcoin was, was mined or created. And there is encryption in there where uh, we basically can peer-to-peer -peer approve and authorize transactions. Um, with that being said, it is a pseudo-anonymous uh, type of ledger. So, you know, my name, you won't see my name in the technology itself, but really at the highest level, a peer-to-peer -peer network where we all authorize and approve transactions and it becomes encrypted and very difficult. There are some mechanisms to reverse transactions or approve where the counterparty is not involved, but essentially it locks transactions in place and everyone can have visibility into it. Okay. And so Matt, are we seeing certain market trends as it relates to digital assets? And if so, what are some of those? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the big ones is increased uh, DeFi, which is decentralized finance. And think about this as kind of a traditional finance um, that is now on the blockchain. So removing your brokers or exchanges, and that is becoming ever more prevalent to utilize blockchain technology to have uh, a decentralized finance function. Also, we're seeing increased form of acceptance of payments. Um, 
whether that's going to buy a Tesla and using Dogecoin, uh, uh, buying pizza, Bitcoin, first Bitcoin transaction was to buy pizza actually. And then also there's an increased in institutional investor um, awareness and diversification of holding these types of digital assets besides just your Bitcoin and Ethereum, right? There's tons of other coins, NFTs out there and institutional investors are recognizing the value of um, throwing some money at it, if you will. Okay, great. Thanks, Matt. So Adam, switching back over to you, given that digital assets are more a current phenomenon yep. and a trend, is there existing accounting guidance that's specific to these types of assets? No, there's no specific U.S. gap currently that addresses digital assets, but we'll talk a bit more about that at the end because there is a current project in the works that um, could hopefully address some of the concerns that current uh, investors or holders of crypto assets have. But given that lack of formal guidance, it really puts the onus on um, reporting entities that do hold these types of assets to look at other areas of gap that may be applicable for how they're going to account for them. And you know, we all know that interpretation of applying existing gap can lead to diversity in practice. And so the ASCPA actually um, was aware of this and, and you know, earlier on formed kind of a working, working group more or less that got together to help create kind of practice preference on how people should think for and account for um, digital assets. And so they created a guide, which is probably the most widely used, at least U.S. gap resource for people to reference when they're thinking through the accounting and reporting questions that can come up. It's it's obviously non-authoritative because it isn't issued by the FASB, but it is, you know, like I said, the most commonly used guide in practice. Um, you know, it's got a lot of good discussion. It goes through a lot of different examples and assessments. So if, you know, you're an entity that's maybe just starting to dabble into this type of asset and you aren't familiar with the accounting, you know, it's a great resource to definitely look into um, because it they tend to update that that um, practice aid as well as the evolution of digital assets, you know, occurs. So we're, we're constantly seeing new types of um, unique assets being introduced under this digital asset umbrella, and they, they try to address those as timely as they can. So definitely a good resource there. I will caveat and say there is specialized gap um, guidance for specific industries that by analogy is often used for crypto assets. So, you know, in a, entities that qualify as an investment company or registered broker dealers, they do have specialized industry guidance in US GAAP that they can reference. Um, and it has specific fair value accounting applicable to those types of companies. But, but like I said, that it, that's a more nuanced focus. Okay, so let's dig into that just a little bit more. When a company actually holds a crypto asset, yep. let's say Bitcoin, where does it go on the balance sheet? Or maybe even a better way to ask it is, where does it not go? Yeah, so currently most crypto assets, they meet the definition of an intangible asset under ASC 350. And the reason it tends to fall into an intangible asset is just based on the definition of an intangible asset under US GAAP, which is the asset lacks physical substance and it's not considered a financial instrument. Um, so this is true. I think a lot of people with, you know, under the current guidance when they're like, I have to call this an intangible asset, they they tend to think it's doesn't necessarily have all the traditional characteristics of what other intangible assets might have. So if you think about like a crypto asset, we've already talked about there's, you know, active markets out there for the mm -hmm. most popular cryptocurrencies, for example, where people are buying and selling that quote unquote intangible asset, you generally don't see an active market for most intangible assets. So that's kind of a unique characteristic. 
Um, also, most intangible assets aren't considered fungible. You know, there really isn't a media, they're not used for a medium or exchange. So the concept of a crypto asset being an intangible asset that's also fungible kind of makes people question whether or not that should be the, the, the correct accounting. But that's really where it does fall under current gap is because it meets that definition of an intangible asset. Okay, let's dig in a little bit more there, Adam. So you're saying that crypto assets lack physical substance and they're not considered financial instruments. Yep. Can you walk me through the rationale there? Yeah, so the largest reason why most crypto assets don't qualify as some other asset type is it really comes down to the definition of what those what gap calls, for example, a financial instrument, what they call cash or cash equivalent. And when you actually look at how it's currently defined in US gap, a crypto asset wouldn't satisfy that. So, you know, for example, under for a financial instrument or for an asset to be a financial instrument, it basically has to be one of three things. One, it has to be cash or a cash equivalent, which cryptocurrency or crypto assets aren't. Um, it has to either give a, the holder an ownership interest in equity or it has to give the holder the right to receive cash or other assets. And so if you think about, you know, let's use Bitcoin, for example, you know, Bitcoin isn't an ownership interest in another entity. It's not cash. And it doesn't give anyone the right to receive cash or another asset, even though you can't actively trade it. It doesn't actually have a contractual right to cash. It wouldn't qualify as a financial instrument. Do you think that that will ever change? Do you think that we'll ever start to view Bitcoin differently as maybe potentially cash or a financial instrument? I think what will happen, and not to sneak peek too much, but like, I think what will happen, at least for the accounting for it, is we will see the introduction of a new definition of what a digital asset is. So the FASB will actually define that and build guidance around that. So we'll be able to specifically address that unique instrument because it may not always meet all the, the requirements to be a true financial instrument like other traditional financial instruments. So they will create a new definition of what just a true digital asset is. Um, but from a, like operational and the way people transact, like I definitely, I mean, we see it now, right? There's already central bank backed like digital currencies out there that are being put into practice. And so I think as we see more movement towards that, especially in larger economies, you can definitely see potentially could, you know, cryptocurrency, for example, become some type of legal tender where theoretically then it could be viewed as cash. Well, especially since Bitcoin or cryptocurrency is already uh, becoming so commonly accepted as payments. I think we've talked briefly about Tesla accepting Dogecoin mm -hmm. um, and, and others. You know, how do we see that playing out from a cash equivalent standpoint? Yeah, so I, I think the trouble with the cash definition most people run into is like, like, again, it comes back to the definition of what is cash under US GAAP. So it's, you know, cash is cash, but a cash equivalent, it's got to be short term in nature, highly liquid, and it can't be can't be reactive to volatility in a market, which is kind of the antithesis <laughs> of what a lot of cryptocurrency is, you know, the market for cryptocurrency is highly volatile. So that already creates confusion and calling it a cash equivalent. Um, also, you know, cryptocurrency, crypto assets, they don't necessarily have a term. There's no maturity on them. So it's hard to say they're short term in nature because there really is no term. Um, okay. And are there any areas, any other areas, entities have thought of trying to classify crypto uh, assets as? Yeah. So 
I guess one other is, you know, I think Matt had mentioned the mining of crypto. So there are like mm -hmm. entities out there that that is their business, right? All they're doing is they've got tons of engineers and computer scientists and a whole lot of electricity working to <laughs> to source cryptocurrency. And it's, and it's truly done for the concept of like, once they find or mine crypto, they're going to sell it. So there, you know, there's a concept of like, could you call this inventory? Because what we're doing is we're building up our inventory with the intent to sell it. Um, under US GAAP though, inventory has to be an actual tangible asset to be considered inventory. So that's why under US GAAP, you couldn't call it inventory, even though you're, you view it as like, this is, this is basically all we sell is crypto. Right. Okay, so that's helpful, extremely interesting. So if most entities are recording digital assets as intangible assets, do these intangible assets have a useful life? And how should companies be thinking about whether or not these assets are considered indefinite? Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, you know, it kind of comes back to just when you think about a crypto asset, um, there really isn't any regulatory um, contractual life or anything associated with the asset itself. So it's, you know, you're going to find that all crypto assets are going to be considered indefinite lived, um, which opens up a whole host of different accounting considerations that you have to take in place. So it is important that that distinguishment is made. But like I said, in practice, you know, nearly all crypto assets are going to be indefinite lived intangible assets. Um, the biggest question and consideration it opens up is like when you have an indefinite live intangible asset, you then have to think about the impairment of that asset. So US GAAP requires at least on an annual basis, you have to test indefinite live intangibles for impairment. Um, but in the case where you've got different triggering events or things that happen that suggest that the value of that asset uh, may be less than its carrying value, you'd have to actually test for impairment throughout the reporting period. And oh when you take God. an asset like, you know, so crypto assets, so volatile, mm -hmm. <laughs> it um, it can create quite an exercise to constantly have to have good processes and procedures in place to, you know, one, identify impairment triggers and then to test for impairment. Um, you know, some of it's easier said than done, especially when you've got an active market. It's pretty easy to go kind of look at the price of, you know, Bitcoin, for example, and look at. Well, I bought it for X, it's now selling for Y. You know, if that's lower than what I bought it for, it's probably a triggering event yeah. that the asset's impaired. Um, but the the downside about impairment um, under US GAAP is that you can always write it down, but you can't ever write it up. Um, that is until you sell the asset. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's it, it views the downside of uh, an indefinite live intangible asset. Um, but you can never really reverse that impairment charge until you actually sell it and potentially could realize a gain upon sale. Okay, very helpful. Matt, let's swing back over to you. Let's talk a little bit about how companies end up with digital assets on their books in the first place. And can you talk to us a little bit more about some of the common ways entities see themselves acquiring these asset types? Yeah, absolutely. So easiest way is you go out and you buy it. <laughs> right, we go to an exchange, we buy it or uh, we mine it. But easiest example is we go out to the market and we buy it. In that intangible um, model that we've been talking about, that asset gets put on your balance sheet when you have control at the transaction cost, um, in, sorry, at the original cost, including transaction costs. So basically what it costs 
to land that asset onto your balance sheet. Not the cost of the asset, not the value of the Correct. Asset. It's what you paid for it in <clears throat> short. And then as Adam mentioned, it then goes into an indefinite intangible and you evaluate it annual, at least annually for impairment and probably more frequently, <laughs> more frequently yeah. upon a triggering event. Yeah. Now there is some unique guidance for industries, broker dealers, investment companies. If you are an investment company, it's similar, right? You go out and you buy it. It goes on your balance sheet as transaction or as cost plus transaction costs. And then you measure that to fair value. Now with that, you do have to be careful as an investment company to identify what type of asset you just acquired, right? Is it an equity asset? Is it a debt? Is it another type of um, security? So there are other considerations there. Um, another way to acquire it is as receipt for payment, um, as a, in exchange for good or service that would fall under 606 and would be considered non-cash consideration. Now this gets, I'll say fun and unique because it, under that guidance, you measure the value of the non-cash consideration at fair value at contract inception. So when the contract is, at the contract inception, it's fair value. Now, this gets unique because a lot of times, if you think about just a normal business, you don't actually receive the crypto upon the exchange of the actual good or service. Now, I won't get too far into the weeds here because there is derivative guidance you need to walk through. Is the underlying readily available or convertible to cash? Is it clearly and closely related to the original contract? You may have a digital asset that you've received as non-cash consideration with derivative accounting as an embedded derivative for the changes in subsequent value there. Another way is through a business combination. You acquire a business or an entity um, under 805 that holds crypto assets or digital assets, and that is just marked at fair value and then falls most likely under your intangible indefinite live model where it's now marked at fair value as of that uh, acquisition date or business combination date, and then is subsequently measured for impairment. And that would just follow ASC 805 and would be treated as such. Yep. Okay, great. Well, no, Matt, I know many crypto asset investors purchase through a third party custodian. Talk to me a little bit about how that works and some of the implications we need to think about. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And it really comes down to who has control of the asset. Um, and we'll, you know, there are many factors to consider in who has control of it in short. Um, reading through the contract and the arrangement with that third-party custodian, that wallet, understanding who actually owns and controls that asset because whoever has control of that asset is who will recognize it on its balance sheet. Okay, and so what are some things that we need to be thinking about when looking at an arrangement that involves a custodian and trying to figure out who actually owns that? Yeah, so with anything that requires judgment and uh, some in-depth analysis under current gap, first place to start, you should read the contract. Yeah. <laughs> what was your legal agreement <laughs> set up? Do you transfer as a depositor? Do you transfer legal title and the ability for the custodian to do what they want with that asset? Now, the AICPA guide has really good in-depth um, questions outlined over who has control based on a certain number of factors. Um, you know, we can read through them, but Ultimately, we have to understand the legal form of the arrangement, the jurisdictions. Is there a legal or regulatory um, items in this jurisdiction between this these two parties that require the transfer from the depositor to the custodian? Can the custodian do what they want, transfer it, loan it, repo it? 
Um, how easily can the depositor transfer, sell, or access it with their private key? Who has the private key as well? So with the key, um, you can actually transfer and, and control, hey, I'm gonna sell it. There's control considerations around that. Um, upon risk of loss or bankruptcy, who bears the risk of that loss? Ultimately, all these factors need to be considered to say who has control. Did I give up control as a depositor to my custodian or did I retain control? And then whoever has the control will recognize that asset on their balance sheet. Okay, so let's dig a little bit deeper here, Matt. So what mm -hmm. happens if going through this analysis, the entity determines that the custodian actually has control of the crypto asset? What happens then? Yeah, so in that instance, uh, the custodian would have the crypto asset or digital asset on their books. Um, within recent SEC guidance on SAV 121, they would also recognize a corresponding liability or safeguarding that asset. And the lender or say, you're the custodian, I'm the depositor, I would have a right to receive the crypto asset on my books, but I don't have the actual digital asset or crypto asset on my books. Now, there's other considerations. Uh, again, like I said, digital assets are fun, right? Because then we start peeling back another layer of now what I, on my balance sheet as recognition, do I have a derivative that needs to be accounted for under derivative guidance? Because the custodian now has the actual digital asset with the corresponding liability on their books safeguard and return the asset, I should say. Okay. So Adam, I wanted to circle back to you on some of the impairment considerations that we touched on earlier. Uh, you know, I know you had mentioned from the accounting perspective, we always write these assets down yep. and then potentially recognize some sort of gain upon sale. Is that always the case? Is there ever a chance that we get to recognize any of the upsides in such a volatile asset? Yeah, unfortunately, no, at, at least under US GAAP. So again, it's, you know, you capture the downside through kind of your periodic impairment testing when you've got those triggering events. But really, as long as you hold that asset, you're never going to recognize any upside until you actually sell it. Um, one thing I do want to mention, at least, because, you know, I, I think we tend to focus on the US GAAP considerations mm -hmm. a lot of times in our conversations. Um, it's mostly where we we tend to play in the, the space we play in as well as our, our clients themselves. But you know, under IFRS, there's actually different accounting for intangible assets. There, there's kind of two concepts under IFRS. So um, there's two approaches that can be elected when you have an indefinite live intangible. And one is very similar to US GAAP where it's recognized at cost and you kind of have this impairment framework that you have to look at periodically. But there's also a concept of a revaluation framework and that's um, under IFRS when you've got certain intangible assets where actually a market does exist, um, which does allow you then to recognize kind of the revalue of that asset, you know, the upside and the downside. And the way that gets presented on your income statement, you know, there's differences there depending on whether it's an increase or decrease. Um, so I won't get into all the specifics there, but I at least want to mention that if there are any IFRS reporters. Um, particularly if you've got, you know, very active market crypto mm -hmm. assets, Bitcoin, things like that, which clearly there is a market for. Um, there can be some premise there where you could actually capture some of that value while still holding the asset. Yeah. And under IFRS too, the definition of inventory doesn't include tangible Correct. as right. 
the US GAAP does. And so there may be a chance. Most practitioners still follow the intangible model, but under IFRS 2, there is a chance where you might be able to capture it as inventory. But again, most practitioners follow the in intangible model. So right. you're saying there's a chance. So <laughs> I'm saying there's I'm, a chance. There's a chance. I love it. Okay, so Adam, though, tell me a little bit more about capturing the downside of these assets. When exactly would you start to assess uh, for any of these losses? It really comes down to that triggering event, like evaluation. So, you know, you're thinking about all the relevant events or circumstances that are going to, you know, impact those significant inputs to fair value. So pretty obvious, like we mentioned, if there is an active market, you can see the pricing of it. But we've also mentioned there are, you know, more like unknown types of digital assets that exist mm -hmm. out there. So the evaluation of, um, whether there's an impairment trigger for those could be maybe a little bit more complex as would be the valuation itself for those types of assets. So it, it will depend. A couple more things I would, would add is that when, when you do have an impairment loss, you know, one thing it, it does get recorded um, in the operating income. So, you know, making sure it's reflected there. Um, but another thing, just like as we're thinking about like the timing of impairment, particularly with very volatile um, crypto assets is that you know, if there is a decline, let's say in an observable price um, that happens during the reporting period, you know, under the guidance, you're actually supposed to recognize that impairment at that time, even if, you know, let's say, you know, a month later at the end of the reporting period, the price is recovered. You don't necessarily always wait to the end of your reporting period to assess whether or not impairment exists. It should be at any point that there is an event or circumstance that essentially says the fair value of this asset is going to be less than its carrying value. So something to keep in mind there, especially with assets, I say, that fluctuate back and forth quite a bit. Okay. So I think we all understand that we've got to write these assets down based off of fair value or yep. if there's been some sort of uh, decrease in the value. But do we have to do this now for each asset that we might have? Is this done on an individual basis or can we look at it in the aggregate? No, that's a good question. I, I would say generally, um, they're going to be assessed separately in most cases. So if you're consistently transacting into Bitcoin, each time you transact into Bitcoin, each of those transactions is going to be considered its own unit of account. So you're going to assess impairment for each of those on an individual basis. So if you buy one Bitcoin at $20,000 and you buy another one at $40,000 and then a month later, the price drops to $30,000, you know, one of those Bitcoins is going to be impaired, the $40,000 one you bought, but obviously you don't do anything with the other one, but you're going to assess each one individually. You wouldn't take like a weighted average of your Bitcoin and the transaction price there to assess impairment. It really should be done on an individual basis. And the premise there is because you can actually transact with that intangible asset um, on a fungible basis. So individual Bitcoins can be bought or sold. So theoretically, you should apply your impairment at the same unit of account. You shouldn't group them together. Okay, helpful. So Matt, back to you. I know when impairment tests are performed, it will require the need for fair value measurement. Uh, we've done a handful of discussions here on the Accounting Matters mm -hmm. podcast uh, around fair value, but can you talk high level about how the guidance there is applied to related to crypto assets? Yeah, absolutely. And when we think fair value, it goes back to, you know, your principal. Is there a principal market or the most advantageous? We There's other considerations over volume, reliability of data. It goes back to judgment needs to be assessed and performed because each 
unit of account will require different judgment and facts and circumstances will will prevail. But for the most part, as we've been talking about Bitcoin, there's usually a large exchange or many transactions. But we can also go and extrapolate that of I can exchange Bitcoin through different types of exchanges. And so we need to establish a principal or most advantageous market. With that being said, a lot of times we look at the volume over you know, most recent period, trailing 12 months, trailing six months, policies and procedures should be set. Um, and when determining which principle or which exchange or market we are going to use. All that to be said, a lot of times we'll have observable data for most crypto assets. Um, not all, always the case with all digital assets, uh, but most of the time, if we go to an exchange and we determine that's the principal market, the data is reliable, it's gonna be a level one type asset because we can see identical assets being exchanged at a certain time for our reporting period. Now, if any other data is used or we go um, a different model besides just use or saying it's not reliable, we may fall into a level two or three under the fair value model. Okay, Matt. And so we said that the upside value, if any, of the crypto assets under the intangible asset model can only really be recognized upon the sale of the asset. So how does this accounting work then for the disposal or sale of an intangible asset? Yeah. So... In general, it falls under um, a derecognition of a non-financial instrument or asset, but that can occur in many ways. Hey, we've been holding the asset for appreciation, so now we're divesting. I'm exchanging it in exchange for in a good or service in a you know a revenue type of transaction, or potentially even exchanging it for an ownership interest. All of that falls into the 610 ASC 61020 guidance of the uh, disposal or derecognition of a non-financial asset. And with that, um, you really just, it goes back to a unit of account because it's pretty straightforward and simple. If I sold it and then I take it off, what is my, what did I receive? And what was that fair value? Was it cash? Was it an equity instrument, etc.? But the unit of account is important, right? We just went through, we need to have some sort of systematic rationale in place to say, what asset did I sell upon this derecognition? Was it my first in or my first out, LIFO, FIFO? Am I, am I using specific ID to identify what asset in my wallet was sold? Um, and the AICPA guidance just really outlines because of the available information, a lot of times first in, first out will be the easiest to adopt, but it needs to be a systematic rationale to remove your cost basis and what did you exchange and what did you receive in exchange for that digital asset? Yeah, yeah. and that's important just, just to add to that is, is really just to figure out like what gain or loss you're actually recognizing on the right. sale of that asset. So like knowing what the cost basis of the asset that you're ultimately disposing of under your policy, and then obviously whatever the fair value of what you, you dispose of will then you know drive what gain or loss you're gonna recognize in the income statement. Yeah, helpful, Adam. Matt, though, it sounds like if an entity is in the business of buying and selling crypto assets regularly, this could be quite a task to manage this process. Is that a fair question, fair statement? That is very fair. It can be quite the task to track all these items. Adam just mentioned we have to keep track of not only each unit of account that we're, um, we've purchased as a digital asset, but also we need to track our impairments that were recorded on each one of those set of accounts. So is it the Bitcoin that was bought at 40,000 that's now impaired that we sold or the Bitcoin that we have at 20,000 that we're de-recognizing? All these are very important. Um, not only from a gain loss, as well as just keeping proper accounting books and records, 
but you can see there's a control aspect over all the policies and procedures you need to think about before you get into um, these digital assets or you know you set it up right the first time and you'll set, be set up for success this shouldn't be an afterthought as you get into um, your digital asset portfolio yeah, Matt, so that's helpful. I wanna switch gears a little bit and talk about some of the operational considerations around holding crypto assets. You touched on it briefly about some of the internal controls and the processes mm -hmm. that we need to consider. What are some of the key areas that entities need to consider um, around relevant controls for these crypto assets? Yeah, and it's all fairly new. And so, uh, fairly, I should say, is a, a general statement, but upskilling of individuals, your processes and procedures. Some of the key items are the controls over the digital keys and wallets. Um, and now we'll get into touching over custodians or third parties as well. But in this instance, as I mentioned, the genesis of digital assets is very secure, secure and potentially irreversible transactions. So then we get into unique keys for unique assets and how are we safeguarding those unique keys and unique assets, sharing them with a custodian, sharing them with your internal people. You may, and the pseudo anonymous nature of blockchain and digital assets means if someone steals a key and transfers an asset to another wallet, you may not know who did it. So safeguarding of your digital assets, your keys and your wallets is very important. Um, with all that being said, you know, transactions over just authorization, um, who has segregation of duties, can we match up the keys in the wallets, et cetera. Who are we using as our custodian that gets into counterparty risks. Um, use of the third parties, again, goes into how do we get comfortable with who we're using and giving our assets. And also goes back to ultimately, hopefully your control aspect that I talked about, who has control of the asset. Um, but with that, you're looking for security and efficiency in dealing with your third parties, as well as you're looking at a lot of times the third parties will provide SOC 2 reports, which are great because they'll they'll give you a glimpse into the actual controls implemented to address the safeguarding and trust service principles. But a lot of times they don't get SOC 1 reports, which are important for financial statement preparation and, and presentation. So you're kind of balancing how do we deal with counterparties and then safeguarding our assets. Uh, along those lines too, there's also potential for unintentional related party transactions. As I mentioned, the pseudo anonymous uh, nature of blockchain may interfere with proper related party disclosures as well. Um, so there's a ton to think about over a control aspect of, and policies and procedures that need to be in place as you get into and expand your digital asset footprint. Okay, so Adam, coming back to you, you'd mentioned earlier the FASB. I know that they've got an ongoing project around this area. Do you have an update on where they stand or what's going on here? No, I'm glad you brought that up because you know the FASB actually has been moving pretty quickly um, on this project. So it was only as of you know May of this year, really, that the FASB decided to add kind of a formal project around digital assets. So really looking at recognition, measurement, presentation of those you know assets and how they will impact the financial statements. Um, so they took that project up in May. Um, you know, fast forward to August, kind of their next update on the project itself. You know, they really kind of 
solidify what was going to be the scope of the project and what type of digital assets would actually fall into the scope of the project. And so they determined that essentially fungible digital assets, so you know, kind of back to the top of our conversation when we were talking about crypto assets, you know, like Bitcoin and Ethereum, those, those qualify as fungible, but also our utility tokens and mm -hmm. things of that nature um, would, would fall under the scope of this project and that the scope of the project would apply to all reporting entities. And that also includes reporting entities that maybe were already using specialized GAP. So we talked about those investment companies, registered broker dealers, um, you know, that were using industry specific guidance. You know, whatever ultimately comes out of this project will apply equally to all entities, public and private. And then the most recent update was actually not too long ago. So in October of this year, um, the board actually kind of came forward with some of the the outcomes of what the accounting is going to look like. Obviously, it's still in deliberation and they're going to draft an exposure draft on this. But, you know, some of their public decisions that they put out is that they are going to use a fair, more or less a fair value kind of measurement model for all in scope crypto assets. And that'll be applied equally for all entities. Um, and then any acquisition costs similar to like other items that are measured at fair value, you would just expense those. You know, one thing to keep in mind, I think, or at least that I thought was kind of interesting is that they didn't make any kind of scope exceptions. So, um, you know, specifically for hard to value assets, there wasn't anything specific for private companies, like a scope exception there where like, you know, for example, they could continue to do the cost less impairment that we currently have under US GAAP. So, you know, if the, if the exposure draft and the ultimate standard that they end up issuing around this, this agenda topic does continue on this fair value measurement you know all people that are investing in these types of assets are going to just have to keep that in mind especially if they you know maybe get into more obscure investment types is that they're going to have to come up with some type of fair value for these assets mm -hmm. so you know definitely something we'll be following keeping an eye on you know like i said i think the the pace of which they're moving it seems like we'll probably have something on this you know pretty shortly um you know and if you're an investor reporting in any holder um in this this type of asset and this is of interest to you, you know, you can obviously weigh in during the comment period when the FASB issues their, their exposure draft. Well, that's great. Well, hey, listen, gentlemen, thank you both for making time today uh, to talk through some of the nuances around decrypting digital assets. Uh, I appreciate you guys both being here for our season two kickoff and uh, look forward to hearing a lot more around this. I'm sure that this is just the start of many conversations that we'll have. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks. I did want to end with, uh, you know, as Alanis Morissette once said, isn't it ironic um, that the genesis of cryptocurrency or digital assets was to remove third parties or intermediaries. And yet here we are with more third parties and intermediaries than, uh, than we care to, uh, to recognize. Yeah, absolutely. Well, more to come on that. Matt, Adam, thank you so much for your time. You bet. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.